Please turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 29. It's been about a month or more, I think it was before Easter, last time we were in Genesis, but I'm excited to jump back in to our study in the book of beginnings. Genesis, that's what it means, beginnings. It is the book of beginnings, the beginning of the universe. God created the heavens and the earth. It's the beginning of the human race and man's relationship with God. We find it all there in the garden, Adam and Eve walking with the Lord. But Genesis is also the beginning of sin and the curse and death. We've seen what went wrong there in the garden. But in God's mercy, Genesis is also the beginning of God's plan to set everything right. He didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us under the curse of death. Genesis shows us the unfolding of God's plan to set everything right and redeem his creation and make a way for the people who are created in his image to be reconciled with him. And this plan for rescue and redemption would be fulfilled through the seed of the woman, through the chosen offspring. In Genesis chapter 12, we met a man named Abraham who was called by God and promised great blessing. He was promised land. He was promised descendants. And he was promised that all the world would be blessed through him. God established his covenant with Abraham. And he promised to continue that covenant relationship, not just with Abraham, but with his children after him. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who also received these great covenant promises, these blessings. And Isaac had two sons. He had twins, Jacob and Esau. But the surprising word from the Lord was that the younger, not the older, would be blessed and would be the bearer of these covenant promises. But Isaac although a saint, is not sinless. And he foolishly favors his older son, Esau. He ignores God's intent, God's plan, and he determines to bless the older instead of the younger. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, she also had her favorite. She preferred Jacob over Esau. She helped Jacob to deceive his father and to deprive his brother of the blessing. You all know the story how Jacob disguised himself, pretended to be his older brother, and he tricked his nearly blind father in his old age. As a result, he did get the blessing, but he had to flee. His enraged brother was determined to kill him, and his mother urged him to go to Haran, far away, that's her homeland, and to remain there until Esau's anger subsided. We saw in chapter 28 that while he was journeying in the wilderness, Jacob found something that he wasn't looking for. He encountered God at Bethel. In the night, Jacob saw that massive ladder, that stairway to heaven that spanned heaven and earth. He saw the angels ascending and descending, and he saw, most importantly, God himself there at the top, directing traffic, sending out his servants, and receiving their reports. Jacob realized that God is not just the God of Abraham and Isaac. He is the God over all, and he is active, and he is able to protect Jacob. Though Jacob is the younger, although he is a deceiver, although he was not seeking God, God's grace was revealed as he sought after Jacob. And as he, concert, uh, as he extended and confirmed his promise to Jacob, he promised he would be with him. He promised he would protect him. He promised he would give him many offspring. Jacob is overwhelmed by this. He sets up a monument there, the, pillow that ser- the rock that served as his pillow, he set it up as a pillar to remind him and all who would pass by that the Lord was in that place 
And Jacob continued on his journey. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. Look with me, in, starting in verse 1. Then, and the then places us right after that amazing scene at Bethel. It says, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, and then we will water the sheep. Scene number one in this chapter is Jacob's arrival at Haran, this, the place where his mother was from. And first of all, he meets the shepherds. Jacob's journey is now complete. He's been guided by God's providence. He's been protected and directed all the way, and it just so happens that he's not only safe, he arrives in the right place, and he meets the right people at exactly the right time. As he arrives, he surveys the scene. And it's almost like a movie director is panning the camera, setting things up for us. We see the field, and then it zooms into the well, and you see the kind of well it was with this big rock covering the opening. And then we see these flocks that are gathered in the shepherds. And immediately what Jacob does is approach these shepherds and begins to pepper them with questions. And they dutifully answer his questions, but they kind of seem eager to push him off on Rachel. If you imagine walking up, walking up on a work site, and maybe those who are at work don't really want to be interrogated by you and, and explain everything that they're doing. So they do answer his questions, but eventually they're like, if you're so interested in, in, uh, in Laban and, and the people of Haran, his daughter's coming. Why don't you ask her? Okay, she can answer your questions. Go bother her and not us. And after that, Jacob's attitude towards them seems to change a little bit. You might think that it's a little bit presumptuous for this stranger to walk up and start meddling in their business and telling them how to do their job. He basically, in a sense, asks them, why are you guys clocking out early? He says, why are you here ready to water the sheep now? It's the wrong time of day. You should be out pasturing them still. They should still be eating and then later come back and water them. Like, you guys trying to clock out early or something? What's going on? Get back to work. And in a sense, Jacob knows what he's talking about. If you remember, his brother Esau was the hunter. He was the outdoorsman, the expert at shooting and tracking and, and taking in game. But that doesn't mean that that Jacob just sat around doing nothing. He was an expert with livestock. He knew what he was talking about with the sheep and with the cattle and the goats because he stayed home and tended after all of the, the, the family livestock. So he knew what he was talking about. And he's kind of annoyed that these men appear to be lazy at the expense of the sheep. The sheep still need to be eating. Why are you here trying to water them? But you also have to wonder if he's trying to get rid of them so that he can talk to Rachel without an audience. Okay, good. Rachel's coming. I can talk to her. You guys get out of here. Why are you here? I don't want an audience. So he's met the shepherds. He's already had a little bit of interaction with them. But then secondly, he meets Rachel. We see that in verse 9. While he's still speaking with them, 
Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. When Rachel arrives, Jacob springs into action, and he actually performs a pretty impressive feat. The shepherds had just told him that it took all of them together to collectively remove this stone. And even the narrator earlier told us that the, mel, that, that the well's mouth was large and it was a large stone that covered it. And Jacob steps up and takes care of it all by himself. I don't know if he was inspired by seeing this woman and the opportunity or if this is some sort of divine provision of strength. But whatever the case is, he, take, he steps forward and actually removes this massive stone himself. This is no longer the picture of passive Jacob that we saw back home with his mother telling him what to do. He takes initiative. He takes the bull by the horns and acts quickly. And God is with him, giving him strength in this moment. And what he does is actually water her flock first. You have to consider that these other shepherds had their flocks there first. They were first in line. First come, first serve. And they were waiting for everybody to get there. Then they'd remove the stone, and then whoever was there first would get a drink. But Jacob steps up. He doesn't wait for them, removes the stone, and has her sheep watered first. And the shepherds don't seem to complain. Wow, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he's able to remove the stone himself. We're not going to get in the way. He's able to back it up. He knows what he's talking about. But then he actually approaches Rachel in verse 11. Notice what happens. After watering the sheep of his uncle, says, Then Jacob kissed Rachel. This is not a romantic kiss. This is the warm family greeting kind of kiss. He kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Jacob here is overcome with emotion, and he warmly greets his relative and tells her of his identity. And you have to think about this, this outburst of emotion. Consider, he's been on a long journey. He's come a long, long ways. And God had told him that he would be with him and direct him and protect him. He had someone who was out to kill him. He's walking through the wilderness alone. He does not know who he's going to meet or how they're going to receive him. And now he finds himself in the right place at the right time. He's met the exact right person and think about, too, all the turmoil and emotions. He's lonely. He's estranged from his family. He doesn't know if he'll ever see his mother and father again. And God's brought him now to his blood relatives. And it's all just a lot for him to deal with. He bursts out in tears. So he's met the shepherds. He's met Rachel. But soon he will meet Rachel's father, Laban. In verse 13, it says... Well, in verse 12, we saw that Rachel, like Rebecca, her mother, when she met a, a, a long-lost relative or a representative of a relative, she runs and tells her father. In verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, we've met this character, Laban, once before, back in chapter 24. You remember the story where Abraham had told his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. 
said, don't marry one of the people of the land. You need to go back and take someone from our clan. And this servant had prayed, God, lead me to the right girl. And if she's the right one, here's the thing she will do. And you remember that this servant had, like Jacob here, come to a well and met just the right person under just the right circumstances. And here, too, the sheep had been watered, although it was actually... Rebecca, who had watered the camels, in a sense. But we see the same kind of theme of flocks and animals being taken care of. And Rebecca had ran and told her brother, Laban, about this man who had come. And Laban had seen the gold rings and the bracelets and seen all this, uh, the, the flocks and the herds. And he was pretty impressed with what he saw. And he had warmly received the servant of Abraham all those years ago. And here we see a similar a similar thing happening. And you have to wonder if Laban's interest, if his warm greeting is perhaps shaped a little bit by the fact that he remembers how rich they got last time someone came and met them at the well. Perhaps he remembers the lavish gifts uh, last time they met someone from Abraham's family. But then Jacob tells him his whole story. It says that Jacob told him all these things. And we don't know what all these things includes, but you have to imagine it explains why he's there alone with only the clothes on his back, why he's separated from his family and estranged, what all had happened. And as we'll come to see later, I think Jacob is going to regret kind of showing all of his cards and telling his uncle everything that has happened to him. Not only does Laban greet him warmly, he embraces him and kisses him, but after hearing Jacob's story, and perhaps being a little disappointed, there's no camels this time, there's no bracelets, there's no jewelry, there's no massive dowry, there's no riches. Well, he does acknowledge his relationship to, to Jacob. You are my blood relative. He acknowledges it. My bone and my flesh. You have to wonder if he's kind of grudgingly acknowledging that. But he does embrace the duties that such a relationship brings. Come stay with me. Jacob brings nothing. He's a fugitive. He's in need. And this actually makes him a little bit of a burden to Laban, but it also makes him susceptible to being exploited. And that's exactly what is about to happen. Scene number one takes place here at the well as Jacob meets the shepherds and then meets Rachel and then finally meets, uh, meets Laban. Scene number two is what we find starting in verse 15 where there are some negotiations. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is shrewd. Jacob knows how to play his cards to get what he wants. But in meeting Laban, Jacob has met his match. Look in verse 15. Then Laban, Laban said to Jacob, this is after a month of Jacob staying with him, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. We find here in scene number two, the arrangement of a marriage. Laban initiates this conversation. And what's going on here is actually changing the playing field. No longer will their relationship be one of blood relatives. 
Laban's actually seeking to redefine things to an employer-employee relationship, which actually places Laban in a position of power over Jacob. Now, he asked Jacob, what do you want me to pay you? If you're going to stay here and work, let's figure out an arrangement. And Jacob knows what he wants. The narrator prepares us for Jacob's answer by describing the two sisters, the daughters of Laban. Leah is the older one, and the narrator describes her eyes as being soft, or some translations would say weak. And commentators are divided as far as what this actually means. It could be some sort of birth defect, or perhaps it's simply just an undesirable trait, such as eye color. Uh, many commentators think that perhaps her, her eyes lacked the fire and the sparkle that Rachel's had, which was a, a highly prized uh, attribute in those days and in that culture. We're unsure what this description of Leah means for sure, but it's pretty clear what the description of Rachel means. She is beautiful in both form and appearance. As far as outward attractiveness goes, she has it all. And to Jacob, she is a ten. And it is love at first sight. Now notice, if you compare this story to the last time we had one of Abraham's descendants acquiring a wife at a well in this place, unlike the servant of Abraham, Jacob doesn't stop to pray. He doesn't stand back and to consider, is this the woman that God has for me? There's no waiting on the will or the word of the Lord. There's no looking for a sign. There's no prayer. There's no anything. He makes this decision based purely on her physical appearance and his desire for her. But unlike the servant of Abraham, who arrived with camels and gifts and jewelry, Jacob has nothing to offer Laban for a dowry. He wants this girl, but he doesn't have anything to give except for his time and his talents. And so that's what he offers. He says, I'll serve you seven years in exchange for the hand of your daughter in marriage. Now, seven years is actually a huge dowry. If you're to add up what would be a, a standard dowry, uh, Deuteronomy 22 actually mentions that 55 shekels was the maximum that you could pay for a dowry. And about a half shekel to a whole shekel would be about a month's wage on average. So think about it. He's offering not just 55, which would be about the max, but something more like 84. Three or four years would have been plenty to earn her hand in marriage but he's so overcome with love, and he so values her beauty, he says, I'll serve you seven years for her hand in marriage. And think about it, too. He's probably not in a hurry to get back home. He knows what's waiting for him. It's just Esau. May as well stay here. And at this point, you have to wonder if Laban is already planning to deceive Jacob. Because notice his response. Look carefully. So often we read so quickly through these verses. Notice what Laban says in verse 19. It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. You know, he never actually names Rachel in the deal. He just says her. And he never exactly promises that he would give her in marriage. He says, it would be better for me to do that than just give her to anyone else. But Laban would be an expert at writing contracts. He's left himself plenty of loopholes, plenty of options. So you have to wonder if he's already sort of making his plans. Maybe his statement is intentionally ambiguous. Maybe he hopes that someone else would come along and marry his older daughter first, because that's actually the, the tradition that he will later bring up. 
But in any case, he leaves his options open. Jacob is blinded by love. He perceives no danger. He doesn't examine the contract very carefully, and he agrees. And it says that the years fly by as if they were only a few days. To Jacob, everything seems to be going his way. Wow, God is with me to bless me just as he promised. He's brought me to the right place. I've I've found the house of my uncle. Here's this beautiful woman I'm in love with, and he's going to give her to me in marriage. Everything is going my way. But that brings us to scene number three. And it's here that Jacob's fortune seems to change just a little bit, which is an understatement. Scene chapter three is the marriage feast. Verse 21, the seven years are past. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening... He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. We see, first of all, in verse 21, desire, Jacob's desire specifically. He says, give me my wife. This is a demand that is driven by his desire. He wants what's coming to him. And it's a little bit of a charged statement. But also the fact that Jacob has to initiate this conversation indicates that perhaps Laban was procrastinating. Perhaps Laban was holding out on him. He's like, Laban, you know it's been seven years. You need to pay me what you owe me. Laban never answers. He doesn't agree and says, I will give you Rachel. He just starts preparing the feast. And following this strong desire of Jacob comes the deception by Laban in verses 22 through 24. Now the feast, the wedding feast, was to last seven days. There would be processions back and forth between the bride's dwelling and the groom's. There would be contracts that were read, agreements that were made. The families would gather. There'd be great celebration of eating and drinking and merriment and dancing. And then the father would present a special gift to his daughter. And at the end of the first day, the groom would wrap his cloak around the bride and take her to his chamber where the marriage would be consummated. But then they didn't leave town like we all do, you know, to go on a honeymoon. They actually stayed there for the next six days. It was a great wedding feast that was celebrated. So how is it possible, you ask, that Jacob could fall for this? Because what Laban does is a bait and switch. He sends his daughter Leah into the arms of Jacob instead of Rachel. It happens in the evening after the first day of feasting. You have to wonder, how could he fall for this? Well, consider the various factors. Uh, We saw when Rebecca approached Isaac, who was the groom, and she was the bride, and she was betrothed to him. She covered herself with a veil. So during this whole day of feasting and celebration and the exchanging of promises and the contracts and all the hoopla, Jacob would have never seen her face and likely even her eyes, if it was the full kind of veil that covered everything. Not just that, but the, the, the consummation of the wedding was to happen in darkness in the evening. Not only that, but you have to wonder if Laban had been serving quite a bit of alcohol at this feast. We remember the story of Lot, that tragic story where his daughters got him drunk and led him to commit some very grievous sins. Uh, Alcohol has a way of dulling your senses and maybe making you very susceptible to this kind of manipulation and trickery. And on top of it all, Jacob is unsuspecting and he's blinded by love. He's consumed with desire. 
So he doesn't stop to inspect anything. So the marriage is consummated. At the wedding, Laban presents a maid to his daughter, Leah. And to you, it might seem like an unimportant detail. Why does the narrator kind of interject this verse? Why does it give us this detail? Because the story flows, even if you remove that. Well, this maid will become very important, as we'll see next week, because she will also have children by Jacob and will become the mother of several of the tribes of Israel. And so there's a lot of backstory to the nation Israel that's being told right now. And the narrator gives us that information that it's at this time that Zilpah comes into the household of Jacob. So that is an important detail. She'll be a key figure and the mother of several tribes of Israel. So the deception has been carried out, and it's been successful. Laban actually pawns off his older daughter on Jacob. Well, it's only a matter of time before the discovery happens. In the morning, there is no veil, there is no darkness, and all the alcohol is worn off. His mind is clear And we have this startling, shocking verse, verse 25, and in the morning, behold, look, consider, it was Leah. It was Leah. Imagine the shock for Jacob. This is not the woman that he wanted to marry, not the woman that he planned to marry, not the woman that he worked seven years to earn her hand in marriage. Not the woman that he wanted to marry, but it was the woman that he had married. Imagine the anger, the hurt that Laban and Leah had done this to him. Imagine the regret, the humiliation, the feeling of betrayal, because this cannot be undone. He is stuck with her. This is permanent. His life has now changed forever. Seven years of labor, gone, and he never saw it coming. You have to wonder what he said to Leah. When he woke up that morning. We're not told, but we are told what he said to Laban. You can imagine him stumbling out of his tent and going directly to Laban. He says in verse 25, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? He says, What have you done? Remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? When they ate of the fruit, what have you done? Remember what Pharaoh said to Abraham when he lied and said that Sarah was his sister, not his wife, and and Pharaoh had taken her into his house? He says, what is this that you have done to me? This outcry is not a question. I mean, Jacob knows exactly what Laban did to him. It's a rebuke. He's condemning Laban's act of treachery, saying, you should not have done this to me. And he asks a piercing question, why have you deceived me? He's accusing him of deceit and treachery and of cheating him. But ironically, Jacob here condemns himself. He condemns deceit when Laban does it. But it's the same thing that Jacob himself is guilty of. This anguish outburst Doesn't it remind you of the reaction of Isaac and Esau back in chapter 27? When Esau comes into uh, his father's tent and he says, bless me, father. And Isaac, what does he do? He trembles violently when he realizes what his younger son had done to him. And Esau cries out in anguish because he knows that his brother has deprived him. And there's nothing less his father can do for him. The same kind of sinking feeling in the gut and the outpouring of anguish and the outrage that they've been duped. Well, now it's Jacob who's singing that song. 
Laban's answer to him is more than just an excuse. It's more than personal defense. It's more than a cultural explanation. Look at what Laban says to him. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. This is a blow to Jacob. Remember, Jacob had told Laban everything that had gone on. And Laban here condemns him, rebukes him for displacing his older brother. He says, listen, Jacob, you might have deprived your older brother and usurped his position, but that's not how we do things around here. Victor Hamilton notes that the phrase, it is not customary in our place, refers to a serious violation of custom that threatens the fabric of society. And his statement is therefore tantamount to rebuke. Laban is saying, you have no right to rebuke me. I'm putting you in your place. You're getting what's coming to you. This isn't how we do things around here. And Jacob is silent. He can make no answer. His protests are silenced by this cutting remark from his uncle. Oh, how he regretted telling Laban the whole story when they first met. Because Laban is now using Jacob's own past as leverage against him. This deception is tragically ironic. Jacob, the deceiver, has now been deceived. The trick that he falls for is the same one he had played on his father. Jacob had disguised himself as his older brother, pretending to be Esau. And his father, blinded by age, fell for it. And now look what happens. Leah is disguised as her younger sister, Rachel, pretending to be her. And Jacob, blinded by darkness and drink and desire, falls for it. Jacob's past is catching up with him. And he's now on the receiving end of deception and is tasting the bitter pain of betrayal. You have to stop at this moment and say, where is God now? Where is the God of Bethel who promised to be with him and to fulfill these promises to him and to bless him? Where is the God of providence who is able to work out all the details to fulfill his plan? Has God abandoned Jacob? Has God, even worse, turned against him? No. No. You see, often what begins as a providential blessing soon turns to turmoil. We've experienced that too, haven't we? Often the mountaintop experiences are followed by the valley, by complications, by frustrations. Yes, God was with Jacob. Yes, Jacob is the bearer of the covenant promise. But this does not mean that everything will be easy. And it doesn't mean that Jacob's faith is fully formed and that there's no rough edges that need to be knocked off. It doesn't mean that Jacob may still face consequences for his scheming ways. You see, Jacob has been a winner so far. He's been a winner at the expense of others. And it's going to take some pain to humble him. And little did Jacob know when he entered into contract with Laban that he had partnered with someone that was even more deceitful than him. And God is going to use someone who's like Jacob, but even more so, to actually cure Jacob of his issues. Still, Laban is clearly in the wrong. We cannot excuse his sin. He ought to have informed Jacob of this custom at the beginning, or at least have found a husband for Leah in the last seven years. 
But Laban conveniently left this detail out and solved the problem by deceiving Jacob, all the while enriching himself, profiting off of this gullible young man who is in love with his daughter, and now he still has Rachel to bargain with. He still has cards to play, and that's exactly what he does. He offers Jacob deal number two. He says in verse 27, Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Well, what does Jacob do? He has no choice. He has him between a rock and a hard place. Verse 28 says, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Finish celebrating this marriage, Laban says, and then you can have Rachel too. The only catch is you've only got to stay another seven years. Laban's getting rich. He's pawning off both of his daughters. He's taking advantage of Jacob, and Jacob has no choice. He may as well agree. He has him cornered. He stayed this long, and he still wants and loves this woman, so Jacob agrees. And that leads us to the closing scene in verse 4. And this closing scene is not a happily after, ever after, riding off into the sunset kind of a scene. It's a scene of disappointment and discord. It says in verse 30, So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. And you know what? The narrator Moses doesn't describe those seven years as going by as quickly as the first seven. In fact, we will soon see that these next seven years are filled with bitter strife. You know the parental favoritism of Isaac and Rebekah preferring one twin to the other? We see it here reincarnated, in a sense, in the next generation, in the marital favoritism, as Jacob prefers Rachel over Leah. Isaac's preference of Esau over Jacob led to much strife and turmoil between those brothers. You can only imagine what effect will Jacob's preference, his greater love for Rachel and his lack of love for Leah, what kind of turmoil will that bring into this new family? You can only imagine, and we'll find out soon, next week if you come back. We'll see the beginnings of it. Later, Israelite law would, forget, would forbid marrying two sisters. It would be literally illegal to do this later. And the wisdom behind that command is going to be proven by the drama that unfolds in the lives of this patriarchal family. There's no happily ever, ever, ever after ending here, just a volatile mix of distrust. I mean, imagine the distrust that Jacob now has for Laban. And the distrust that Jacob has for Leah, who is part of this deception. And the distrust that Laban will now have for Jacob, knowing that he's going to want to get even. Imagine the disappointment. Leah knows that she's not loved. She knows that her sister is the favorite. She knows that her father used her. She's been a pawn throughout this whole thing. Imagine even the distrust of Rachel, knowing that she's loved, but knowing that she too has been used by her father as a means to an end. Imagine the jealousy between the two sisters, the competition. At least for now, there's no happily ever after. You know, although this story has many similarities with the account of Abraham's servant seeking a wife for Isaac, meeting Rebekah at the well, 
This chapter, if you compare it, has a lot of differences as well. Uh, Those of you who get the weekly email, I I encourage you to read this story and then go back and read the other and sort of compare them. What you'll see are many similarities. You'll see flocks and you'll see a chance meeting at a well and you'll see Laban involved and you'll see a marriage and a dowry. A lot of similar ingredients, but you'll also see many differences. In the first story, we see the beauty of God's providence. As God is the one who divinely brings people together, provides what is needed, and confirms his will by signs and and indicators. But in this story, we don't see the beauty of God's providence on display as much as we see the ugliness of human scheming and manipulation. In the first story, we see a happy ending of joy and comfort. As Isaac marries Rebekah, it says he was comforted. After his mother's death. But at the end of this story, we see a bitter ending filled with strife and distrust. In the first account, we see a story that, uh, of faith and its reward. The faith of Abraham's servant. We see the faith of Rebekah trusting that this is God's will to go marry a man she's never met. We see the faith of Isaac receiving the woman that God has provided. We even see the faith of Abraham trusting that God will lead his servant to the right woman. And we see God's blessing on the faith of all who are involved. But in this story, we don't see faith so much as a deceiver who's being deceived. A sad case of reaping and sowing. In the first story, we see God's hand acknowledged and trusted. The servant prays. The servant steps back to consider. The family says this evidently must be God's will. We see God's hand acknowledged and trusted. But you know what? In this story, God's hand seems to be hidden. It's definitely ignored, perhaps forgotten. There's no prayer, there's no waiting, there's no pausing, there's no consideration, and there's no thanksgiving, as we see in the first story. In the first story, we see a showcase of service and sacrifice. We see a humble servant fulfilling his master's wishes. We see an eager Rebecca who waters the camels, and we see her willingness to step out in faith and go, and all of this service and sacrifice. But in this story, we see selfishness and exploitation. Jacob wants this woman for his own desires. We see that Laban exploits that desire and gets rich at his expense and uses his daughters as pawns. Selfishness and exploitation. What a stark contrast between these two marriages that resulted from two chance meetings at two wells in this region of Haran. You know, there's several things we can learn from this tragic and heartbreaking story. And the first is that selfish decisions lead to natural consequences. Again, there's a principle here of reaping and sowing. We saw that with Esau, that Esau reaped what he has sown, and now it's Jacob's turn. And you may think, but isn't Jacob the promised one? Isn't he the recipient of the covenant? Well, yes, Kent Hughes comments, far from being immune to discipline, God's children are the object of special discipline. Deuteronomy 5.16 says this, Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Well, Jacob has done what? Has he honored his father? No, he's done exactly the opposite. And as a result, he's brought heartache and pain into his own life. He is reaping what he has sown. His treatment of Isaac has led to painful consequences. Jacob is going to have to learn some lessons through the school of hard knocks. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you have a degree from that institution. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way going forward. 
Psalm 32, starting in verse 8, says this. This is God speaking. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And here comes this exhortation. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. See, there's a principle here for us. We can learn things the hard way, like a horse or a mule that's stubborn and has to have a bit in its mouth and a bridle on its head to force it to go the right direction. Or we can take the path of wisdom and to follow God's instruction, to cling to his love. That'll make your life look a lot different, a lot different. There's something for us to learn here from this story. But secondly, we can also learn this lesson that selfish desires often lead to collateral damage. Simply put, your sin will affect others. Jacob shows great concern for himself, his needs, his desires, and he sins against his father and his brother in the process, and that sin affects him, but his sin also affects others. His selfish desire for Rachel puts him in a situation where Leah is exploited. It's not just Jacob. We see this especially with Laban. He shows great shrewdness taking advantage of Jacob. He uses his daughters as pawns in a game of marital monopoly. We never know what either of them wants. We never know what either of them feels, if they even desire to be married to Jacob. Unlike the earlier story where they ask Rebecca what she thinks, and she says, I will go. She was asked for her answer. Rachel and Leah are silent. But we will soon see that they were not unaffected by this drama. There are wounds from this situation that go deep. Wounds that last for generations. Wounds that are never healed in their lifetime. Desires of their hearts that will soon face disappointment, frustration, and heartache. Sin always harms others. Rachel and Leah are collateral damage in this story. Neither of them are doing anything wrong, but they're swept up in this sinful game of competition and scheming between Laban and Jacob. So there's two warnings there. That's all kind of heavy. It's rebuke, speaking of sin. But the third lesson we learn is something that I think will encourage us. It's what I want you to really latch on to with your fears and with your regrets You see, God's design leads ultimately to the consummation of his purposes, and that's even true in cases as ugly and broken and mixed up and messed up as this. In all of this, although God is not mentioned, although God is not acknowledged, although he is not sought or trusted or honored, in all of this, God is at work. How is he at work, you may ask? How can all of this mess possibly turn out for good? Well, there's a principle here that I think will help you. You see, you have to move far into the future to see how this situation actually is worked together for good. And that shows us that God's design, God's plan for our good, the the way that God brings all his promises to bear, it's often impossible to discern from up close. You can't see it when you're in it. And sometimes you don't even see it in the near future. Sometimes you have to zoom out and go far into the future to see exactly how all this will come together for good, for good, and to understand exactly why God would allow such ugly, hurtful, painful things to happen to people. But when we look at this story, if we'll zoom out 
And if we'll see the big picture, we can see that God indeed is at work, even though none of them could have perceived it in the moment. And I want that to be encouraging to you. Some of you have gone through some incredibly difficult things. Some of you are in the middle of incredibly difficult things. And as you look at your circumstances, you may look at it and say, how is God going to work this out? And why is God allowing this? Why is God causing this? You may not be able to perceive the answer. And sometimes we get so frustrated because we try so hard to see how and to understand why. Maybe you can't see it. And maybe you're not supposed to. It's really hard to read the tea leaves and figure it all out. You may be here this morning thinking, you know what, I've ruined everything. My situation is too broken. It's too messed up. I've sinned. I've messed everything up. And now God is allowing me to reap what I've sown. And it's too late. We'll hear this this morning. You may have sinned. And you may have brought some heartache and some pain upon yourself. But let me tell you this. You have not and you cannot ruin everything. God is greater than your sin, and he's able to bring his plans to fulfillment despite even the ugliest of scenarios. scenarios. The sin of Jacob and Laban will affect many, but it will ultimately be used to further God's plan of salvation for the world. Consider this. Zoom out with me just for a moment. The drama between these two wives, which is the result of the sin of men before them, the drama between these two wives and their competition will lead to drama between their sons, specifically between Joseph and his brothers. And the drama between Joseph and his brothers will result in him being sent to Egypt. And Joseph being in Egypt will result in the preservation of the entire family. If they never go to Egypt, they all die of starvation. If they don't go to Egypt, God's covenant blessings are quenched. The fire goes out. The line terminates. But Israel survives the famine, and the lineage of the Messiah continues One day a great nation will come from the wombs of these four women, the two wives and their two servants. And these 12 tribes from among them, from the tribe of Judah specifically, will arise a king named David. And through his lineage, a Messiah named Jesus. And through Messiah Jesus, the Christ, the blessing of salvation will come to the whole world. God is able to work out the broken pieces, the heartache, the tension, the drama, and shape all of it into his perfect plan to bring salvation. Did Jacob see it? Did Rachel and Leah, Zilpah and Bilhah and their children see it? I think Joseph started to see it, but that's still many, many years into the future. Be encouraged this morning that if you're in the middle of something difficult, you may not see how it works together, but you're called to trust that God will, that God can, and that God will. So don't waste all your energy and all your effort trying to figure out why or how. Just trust God. Trust him in the moment. Keep your eyes fixed on him because his grace is greater than your sin. And his providential power is able to bring all things together for good like it promises us in Romans chapter 8. No matter what's happened in your life, no matter what situation you find yourself in, You are not beyond the grace of God, and you are not outside his sovereign plan. He is able. So let's seek to honor him. 
Let's seek to embrace his plan. And as difficult things come, embrace the pain because God uses it to purify us and to make us into who he wants us to be and to strengthen our faith. And let's trust that God knows what he's doing and that he is able to to make us to be the kinds of men and women and boys and girls who have faith in him and who are shaped and fashioned into the kind of tools that he wants to use to fulfill his purposes. Let's pray together. God, as we look at this story, our hearts break for the victims of sin, for Rachel and Leah. They got sucked into something that they never asked for. They never signed up for that. We even feel heartbroken for Jacob, the pain and the heartache, even though it was self-inflicted. We can identify with him. Sometimes it makes it worse, not easier, to know that the pain and the difficulty we face is because of our, our own sin. But God, we're encouraged as we consider that you did not cast Jacob off. Your promise was not removed from him. You did not abandon him. You were faithful to him, even though he wasn't always faithful to you. And then even though this mess came about, even though they were all the victims of Laban's scheming, you were able to work all of this together to bring about your good and perfect plan. And we stand here today as beneficiaries of your wisdom and your grace to that generation of people. God, I ask that as we go through the ups and downs of our lives, as we sometimes are on the mountaintop and we see you and we hear your word and we're like Jacob at Bethel, and then other times we're reaping what we've sown, or perhaps other times we're victims of the sin of others, Lord, we know that you are with us in both cases, whether we see you and perceive your hand or whether you seem to be far removed, whether you seem to be distant, whether you seem to have forgotten us, God, we know that you always see, you always hear, and you are always at work, and you've promised to be with us and never forsake us. God, help us to hold on to your promises, and I pray that you would give us wisdom as we look to this story, wisdom not to allow our selfish desires Um, to bring pain into our lives and the lives of others. Make us wise, strengthen our faith, and we thank you especially for your grace that's been poured out through Jesus, and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.